My name is Michael. If we haven't met yet, I'm glad to be together with you. Um, and if you are new here, this is your first time, uh, I have no idea. So uh, you, can, you can just kind of uh, blend into the crowd. Um, I am from Ocala. My family is here with me, and we are um, part of Neighborhood Church in Ocala. I don't know if you know, I suspect many of you do, that there are three congregations um, which share the name and the mission of Neighborhood Church, one in Ocala, one in Sebring, and one here in Lakeland. Um, and you are not alone. I don't know if you feel like that all the time, but just to let you know, you're not alone. Um, it's so cool to have Kendall here on a day that I'm here. So Sebring and Ocala serving together in Lakeland, I think, is a beautiful thing. Um, and I don't think we planned that, but, it, but it's great to work out. Um, I was asked just to share a little bit before we get rolling about what's going on in Ocala. Um, which is a dangerous request when you ask the preacher to talk for a little bit. Um, and there are just so many things, like God's been so gracious to us. It's been, uh, our, our, our gatherings on Sunday morning have grown, um, which is typically the most visible mark of like a church. Um, but and that is, you know, it goes up and down and vacations and all those kinds of things. The thing that's really beautiful to me is, is I'm seeing the congregations connect to one another and gather in their living rooms, in their neighborhood, invite, like inviting their neighbors into their home to show them hospitality and, uh, and introduce them to Jesus by the way that they love them. Um, and I'm seeing that all across the board. And that's the thing that I get excited about. And there, I could tell you a bunch of stories about what that looks like. Um, but it's been really cool. We've got a group of guys that are exploring eldership and, and the responsibilities of spiritual leadership. I don't know that all four of them will step up to be elders, but we're in a group having a conversation about what that looks like, um, the character uh, and the leadership stuff. And that's been super cool. Um, and we're continuing to partner with an organization there in Ocala called Wear Gloves, which is a charity that doesn't do charity. Um, so they're a nonprofit organization, but they don't give out anything for free. Um, in fact, anything that you want from them, you have to buy from them, which you would say, like, that doesn't sound like a very good charity, except that if you are uh, immense, like, in a terrible straits, on, down on your luck, and really just need to get back on your feet, there's something powerful about being able to buy something that your family needs and to feel like you are, are buying in. And so that's their philosophy, not just to give people a hand out, but to offer them an opportunity to work um, and to get the things that they need. And we partner with them. We host uh, um, some work in our, pro in our building and uh, are training up uh, folks who otherwise wouldn't really have opportunities to work. Um, and give them the opportunity to do that in an environment like it's already in a church, so I don't have to apologize for being preachy because I'm the preacher and you came in the church. Um, but we get to blast like Christian music while they're at work which is, and build an environment which is unlike anything else that they're experiencing in the world. Um, and it's been really beautiful to see them find value in it. Um, regardless of where they're at spiritually, they find value in it and they want their friends to come and work with them because the vibe is just so good. So I'm excited about that. All right, I'll stop. <clears throat> Um, again, if we haven't met yet, my name is Michael. I'm uh, one of the pastors at Neighborhood Church in Ocala. And um, this morning, again, if it's your first time, um, you're not really going to miss out on anything because we're, I'm going to introduce to you a series that's going to work um, like a margin. You know how paper used to have margins around the edges of it? It's gonna, it's, this series is going to act like a little bit of margin for us. Um, it's going to fill in some gaps and offer some transition between the larger series that we do. Typically, as we, uh, as we study, we take a text of scripture, a big chunk, and we work through it over a couple of weeks. 
Um, you've done that uh, with a much smaller chunk uh, in the Sermon on the Mount over the last couple of weeks. But this series is, is just called Prayer Stories. Um, and what we'd like to do is we'd like to zoom in on um, some prayers that are recorded in Scripture and not just look at the, the theology of the prayer, um, but also to, to understand the story a little bit. I had a professor uh, who told me one time, and it took me a, a minute to kind of chew on it, so I'll, I'll give it to you and we'll talk through it a bit. He said, theology doesn't happen in a vacuum. Theology doesn't happen in a vacuum. And I immediately thought, like, are we talking Dyson? Like, what do you mean does, you can't fit in a vacuum to do theology? I don't understand. What he meant was like space is a vacuum where like there's nothing going on, there's nothing interacted with it, um, like it's, it's a clean, a sterile environment. And his point was that theology, the questions that we ask of God, we don't wrestle with God in a vacuum. It, there is never an instance where you have like gone to God to wrestle with something with him that it hasn't been connected to some kind of circumstance in your life. That, uh, that's presumptuous of me. Has there ever been a time <laughs> where, you've, where you've just been like, God, I was wondering, like, are you in control of everything? Just, just out of the blue, I'm just curious. Or do we wrestle with that question when it feels like everything's out of control and all the people that I loved and trusted are betraying me? Like, it's messy. Theology and wrestling with God is messy, or at least it is in my life. You guys seem pretty well polished. So, <clears throat> um, And that's what this series wants to do. We've got these beautiful prayers, but let's, let's zoom, zoom in a little bit on the story that surround them. What's the wrapping paper? What are the circumstances? And maybe, just maybe, we can glean something from the way that these people are interacting with God um, in the midst of the mess. So, if you've got a little bit of mess in your life, like, great, you're in line with pretty much everybody else in the Bible, and we're going to zoom in on a couple of those stories and talk about how to wrestle and meet with God in, in those moments. Does that sound like something we want to do together? Yep, I, you gotta, I'm not just talking at you. you got to talk back. Is that what we want to do together? Is that okay? Yeah? Excellent. Perfect. <clears throat> um, so... Let's do things out of order a little bit, but let's, let's pause and let's pray as we get started. It's our habit in Ocala to pray together what we call the Disciples' Prayer. You'll probably know it as the Lord's Prayer, um, and I'd invite you to pray together with me. If you'd like to, pray out loud. That's great. Um, I'm going to use the vows and trespasses, which is unusual for me, but I think that's the one that most people know. Um, so I'll pray together the vows and the trespasses. And, um, and you can pray out loud with me if you'd like to, but at the very least, I'd invite you to bow your hearts, and let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
the story that we're going to zoom in on together this morning happens in a period of time um, that may be difficult for us to imagine. Um, the, the, the time frame in years-wise is about uh, 1120 BC. So this is before Jesus walked the earth. Um, and it's a really distinct time in history for uh, the people of Israel. The people of Israel were supposed to have a real special relationship with like the one true God. His name is Yahweh. And he, uh, he had called this random pagan out of Ur named Abe and brought him to a special land and said, I'm going to give you this land. And uh, Abe kind of you know, did his thing. And then he had to leave the land. And they ended up in slavery for some time. We talked about that at the beginning of the year. And then they were released. And they got to go back into the, the promised land that, that God had promised Abe. And God's like, I'll be your God. And you'll be my people. And we'll have this special relationship. Just serve me. And they get into the land and, and, and serve everything but Yahweh. Like serve everything but the one God who like had delivered them. Um, this period of time is often referred to as the judges, uh, the period of the judges. Um, and things like across the board nationally are pretty bad. Now, we're, we're going to have to use some sanctified imagination. You may want to close your eyes um, and just imagine, if you can, a time where there's just constant conflict in your nation. Where, where every discourse is like aggressive and angry and there are people that are trying to take over other people and there's fighting and there's bickering. Like, can you, can you possibly imagine a time of constant conflict in your nation? Not only that, it was a time of, of complete corruption. The people who, who God had like called out and wanted to call into a special relationship with him, they were just like sticking their nose up at him like, we've got, we've got this handled. We can handle this ourselves. We'll take the bribes. We'll do uh, manipulation. Like we're just every component of the government and every component of the religious system that were established had become corrupted. Could you, could you possibly imagine? And likewise, as, 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 as the people, as the normal people saw how everything had kind of fallen apart, all the leadership had just kind of gone their own way and weren't walking with God, they're just like, you know what, forget this. Like, I'm just going to worry about myself. I'm just going to make sure that everything's happening okay on my farm, and I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to be a little bit complacent. Like, I don't need to go out of my way to follow God. Like, if, if God cared about me, he would be taking care of his leaders, and he's not doing that. So this is a time of, imagine, imagine, you're going to imagine. Constant conflict, complete corruption, and, um, and, and a people that are complacent. I, I grew up Baptist, so those are your three C's for the morning. There were, however, um, as, as that's the picture of the nation, but there were, however, a couple of individual people, a couple of individual families who stood out in this time, and God is careful to preserve a record of them. Like, God sees the people who are getting it right, and he's preserved a record. One, one is a, a guy named Manoah and his wife, and their story is in Judges chapter 12, um, and they, they pray urgently for a son, and what they get is a big brat. Uh, you probably know him as Samson. He's my least, one of my least favorite people in the Bible. I'm not going to talk about him anymore. Um, but his mom and dad were pretty solid. They didn't really understand everything, but they were trying to, to walk with Yahweh in a special way. The other one you probably will know is a guy named Boaz uh, and, and the wife that he took, Ruth, which is crazy because she wasn't even supposed to walk with Yahweh. She was from a different country. Like, it's astonishing. But God preserves their story. And another story that he preserves is one of a man named Elkanah and a woman named Hannah. And that's where we're going to pick up today. That's what we're going to zoom in today. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 1. 
if you'd like to navigate with me there, 1 Samuel chapter 1. And if you're using, uh, if you picked up one of these Bibles in the back, it's on page 225, 225 in these Bibles here. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 1 and read this, the individual personal story of this family in, in, a, in, a, in a nation that is just off the rails. First Samuel 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penaniah. And Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penaniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously and irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Let's pause there just for a moment. There's a couple of, a couple of things to unpack. <laughs> and I love, uh, I love, Elkanah's a guy I just kind of, like, I feel like I'm that guy. Like, he's, he's, he's supportive, like, he, he wants to be supportive, but he also just doesn't quite understand the, the turmoil in his wife. Because he's like, well, I gave you double, and I love you the best. And, like, you're my favorite. Like, I love you so much. Like, aren't I better than, than, than ten sons? It's like, bro, you're not that great. Like, she could probably do without you. Anyway, sorry. That's, anyway. <clears throat> now, the first thing that might jump off the page to you is we're talking about a polygamous relationship. Um, the Bible oftentimes describes what happened. Um, there's, there's, we'll, and we'll unpack this a little bit more, there's a difference in the scriptures between something that is descriptive, which describes a thing that happened, and something that is prescriptive, which is, this is what you ought to do, right? Can, can we see that? Descriptive, this is what happened. Prescriptive, you should do the thing that happened here, right? So here, we've got an instance of polygamy. It seems like, because of the order that it shows up, that Hannah was his first wife, that he took her first, but she didn't have any kids. And so he took a second wife, who then had a bunch of kids, apparently. And, and, and we can look at that and go, like, that's kind of messed up. Like, I don't think I like that. And yet, we live in a, in a completely different world where the healthcare system and the economy is all vastly different. And we don't understand, like, we think kids are optional. For them, kids were a matter of life and death. It was survival of the family. And it was important to have them. And so, 
uh, Elkanah took a second wife that could have kids. Now, now he still loved Hannah. He still had a lot of respect for her. Um, he, he clearly continued to provide for her and care for her. But as a, as a matter of, like, survival, he had made this decision. And it didn't go well. Like, yes, the Bible describes polygamous relationships, but none of them are described in a positive light. It's always a, 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 a cause of uh, tension. Can I say Tension. And we see that here. The wife that has kids is, is picking on the wife who can't have kids, which is kind of not fair, especially because it's God's fault, right? Like the text said twice that it wasn't anything that Hannah had done wrong. The Lord had just chosen, Yahweh had just chosen to close her womb. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a, a result of any sin that we have in the text. Like just God decided to do that. And that's not fair. And oftentimes, God's real clear about the things that he did. He will often tell us the what. And few and far between are those times where he explains to us the why. And the problem is when we come to suffering, whether it be childlessness or whether it be uh, sickness or pain, like we often, like our, our instinct is the why. Like, God, why me? Why now? Why don't you care? What's interesting about this family, though, is that they are, appear to be faithful to Yahweh in a time where that was actually unusual. They left Ephraim and would travel to Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle was set up at the time. So they would, they would bring their sacrifices, presumably, it's not explicit, but presumably three times a year, which was what God told them to do. Which, like, in the time where everything's corrupt and in conflict and everybody's complacent, like, this was unusual. This family was trying to be faithful to Yahweh. Um, but doing good, doing the right thing, does not mean that life is easy or goes the way that you planned it. So here's a truth. Can I, can I observe something with you? And, and then I'll, I'll amend it a bit as we go on. But, but here's, here's something that I think we're afraid to say out loud. So let's just say it this morning. Our hearts are reshaped in our suffering. Do we, do we know that to be true? Our hearts are reshaped in our suffering. There's something when we come to grief, when we come to pain, when we come to sickness, there's something that, that changes who we are. It reshapes our heart. Like, we know the people who are not the same after the accident, right? Our hearts are reshaped in our suffering. And here we have a glimpse into how Hannah's heart is shaped. Like, that's the gift of this story. Let's continue reading in verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a, vowed, a, vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant... 
but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth, and Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. And therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever." Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young, and they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. So she prays and pours out her heart, and the priest thinks she's lost her mind or she's drunk. That should give you an indication that he's not particularly perceptive. Uh, As the story goes on, he doesn't demonstrate much faithfulness at all. Um, Probably we skipped over it and didn't think about it a ton, but his sons actually have Egyptian names, which is a little bit strange when you were delivered out of slavery from Egypt, right? Does that strike anybody else as a little bit goofy? And so Eli uh, isn't a great guy. But Hannah pours out her soul before the Lord. She, she processes the grief and the anguish that she's feeling. For us, this isn't, just like we, this isn't just like I'd like to have a kid. That would be a cool thing to have. Like This is actually like a life and death situation because it's, it's been clear that the way that this other wife is behaving, like if something happens to Elkanah, I'm on my own. I have nobody to take care of me. I have no help. I have no refuge. I have nobody to provide for me if something happens to Elkanah. And I love him and he's great, but he's also mortal. 
And so God, will you watch out for me? Will you protect me? Will you provide for me? And I, and I trust that you're going to do this because if you do, then I'll give him back to you. I'll give a son back to you. Give voice to your grief. Y'all look pretty cleaned up. You got your collared shirts on. We had a shower today, and that's great. But if we hide our grief from one another, if we hide our grief from the Lord and pretend like everything's fine, we're doing nobody any favors at all. Give voice to your grief. Where did Hannah turn? She came to the house of the Lord, and this, this, is, this is literally just a box with some drywall on the walls. Like, this isn't really that fancy, but this is the place where the church of God meets. And if, if she can give voice to her deepest griefs in that place, should we not also give voice to grief? God is not afraid of your feelings. Whether it makes anybody else in the room uncomfortable, God is not afraid of your feelings. And she pours out her heart to him. But oftentimes, we ourselves are afraid of our feelings, and we will not trust them to him. Because if I don't know what to do with this, then surely the God of the heavens who designed emotions doesn't know what to do with them, right? Do we trust God with our feelings? Boldly, Boldly, confidently go into grief. But don't live there. Hannah pours out her heart. She receives what she seems to understand to be an answer. I'm, I'm pretty sure Eli was just trying to get her off of his lawn. Like, I don't have much confidence that Eli knew anything about the situation. Like, he just seems like, all right, well, may God give you what you want. Like, he doesn't even really dig into the situation at all. Like, I hope God answers your prayer. Time to, time to get away. But she takes that as, as okay, maybe, maybe God has heard me. And she goes, and she washes her face, and she goes home with her husband, and she lies with her husband. And that is an act of faith. She entered directly into grief. And she didn't live there. And she kept her vows. She did. Like, God heard her and remembered her and, and, and answered her prayer, and she kept her vows. And I will say this, I, I like Elkanah here because it says that he went back to Shiloh to pay his vow, which means that he heard his wife make a vow and said, I'll stand by that. I'll make sure that that gets paid. He allowed her to make that vow, which was the, the way that the structure worked at that time. And he put his neck on the line for her. And then she kept the child until he was weaned, which was probably three, four years. She got to raise the child. And then she kept her vow. Now again, I'll remind you, there's a difference between descriptive and prescriptive texts in, in the Bible. It can be really tempting to look at this and go, well, as long as I just lay my heart out raw before the people of God and before God himself, then God will give me what I want. It happened in this instance, but it's not a guarantee. And isn't that 
the frustrating thing about dealing with Almighty God, creator of the universe? He closed her womb and then he opened it. We don't know why. And he wasn't obligated to. But our hearts are reshaped in suffering. And if God is in it, our hearts are reshaped in suffering to abide with God. There are lessons that we can learn in suffering that we can't learn anywhere else. It's a mercy that God would withhold from us something that we think is going to satisfy our every desire. I know that doesn't sound particularly American. Because usually when we feel like we're dissatisfied, like we get mad at God. You didn't do what I wanted you to do. You didn't answer the prayer that I wanted to do. Like you didn't, you didn't meet me the way that I thought you were going to meet me. And how can I trust you if, if you didn't do what I wanted you to do? Will our pain drive us towards or away from God? If we know that our hearts are reshaped in suffering to abide with God, to actually relate to him well. That brings us to chapter 2 and to the reason why we've, we've come here together to this passage. Hannah prayed. Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him... Actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on him he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. This is not the prayer that I like, expected. 
Like if, if, you, if you expected to, to be able to be a fly on the wall in Hannah's mind, like are these the kinds of things that you would expect? Maybe? I, I don't know. What, for one thing, like the way a woman's mind works is just so fascinating, and I never can really anticipate what's going to happen. But like this is just not, this, these are not the words that I would expect to see. This is not, she says, Functionally, basically, God does what God wants. Not God, God answered my prayer, not, not I was penitent enough, not I had atoned for my sins enough that God would give me the thing that I was asking for, but she just basically says God does what God wants. And praise be to God because God does what God wants. This is his world. He made it. He established the rules that it's centered on. And God does what God wants, and we're just a part of it. And if you're full now, then maybe you'll be hungry tomorrow. I don't know. And maybe if you're hungry today, then maybe tomorrow you'll be full. I don't know. God does what God wants. And this prayer reflects an attitude that I struggle to own. Give voice to grief. A young mom looking cancer in the eye. Oren's done some of the best writing I've ever seen him do in the midst of this. And I'm not saying that's why. Like, I don't actually know why. All I know for sure is that God does what God wants. And blessed be the name of the Lord. We tend to approach life um, academically. Maybe school taught us to do this. If we get into a test, we assume I have to know the right thing, right? Is that, is that just me? Like I, I want to get the right answers? Right? Yeah? <clears throat> and, and it's not simply knowing the right answer. It's not simply being able to ace a theology exam about the sovereignty of God. Like, it's not that our suffering teaches us new lessons that we can then clearly communicate to other people who are also suffering, that we can give them the right thing that will make everything not hurt so bad. Like, no, that's not what happens. Our hearts are reshaped in suffering. God is not necessarily teaching us new information, but he's reshaping who we are that we might abide in him. It'll sound familiar, as Luke records uh, what we call the Beatitudes, he, he does something a little bit different with it. He, he, he goes kind of Hannah mode of like, blessed, but then also, whoa. <clears throat> Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are happy, for now you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. So their fathers did to the prophets. But verse 24, Luke shares something that, that Matthew may not have captured. 
But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. And woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. None of us wishes for pain on other people. And I don't think God does either. I don't think God is just like, yeah, I just gotta, I gotta crush you so that I can make you what you need to be. I don't think that's the heart. But I think he sees that we just latch on to comfort and we latch on to, to things going well in a way that we begin to think like, I have done this, I have made this, and this is, this is my domain. And of course I deserve air conditioning all the time, cranked down to 65 degrees because this is Florida. We, we attach ourselves to our comforts and God's saying, these things are not actually going to give you life. It, it will not kill you to sweat a little bit. In fact, you might trust me more in the sweating. There's some verses that I think we may have, like, forgotten, written by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. This, this is not a message that we, we, we have tattooed on ourselves, and yet it's, it's here in the scriptures. For this, for this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. I, I thought if I walked with Jesus, that everything's going to be cool. Like, it's just going to work. I'd never have to get an oil change again. Like, just drive forever, you know? For this is a gracious thing. This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Um, there's a, a Franciscan fella named John Baker, and he asks this question, which I think is appropriate. Is there something wrong with being prosperous or enjoying good things in life? Because it seems like that's what I'm saying, right? Like, as long as everything's going good, like, you're, you're getting ready to be doomed, like that's, is there anything wrong with this? The answer, he says, is no, there's not. But social and economic security can blind us to certain realities and make us deaf to others, making us unable to respond to the ethical and spiritual demands of the kingdom of God. The question is this, where are we looking for our life's fulfillment? Do we think that we'll be fully satisfied this side of heaven? Do we think that if the election goes the way that we think, that suddenly everything will just be great and there'll be no more conflict and, and, and all the policies that I think are going to make everything work is just going to happen? Do, do we think that if, if, if this person would just see things my way, then they would stop fighting with me and, and, and everything would go perfectly? Do we think that if I just had that raise that suddenly work wouldn't be hard. 
where are we looking for our life's fulfillment? Because whether you are full or whether you are empty, all of the fulfillment that God promises us is himself. And I think that's what Hannah grasped. Because the end of her prayer, this, this blew my mind. Like, like this, is, this is the mysterious working of the woman's mind. <clears throat> Even Hannah hopes for a coming king. Where does that come from? Did you read it in, in, in verse 10? The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. What is that even coming from? Like, this is at a time where there are no kings. This is at a time where everything is off the rails. This is at a time where the government is not to be trusted. This is at a time where everything is corrupt. And yet she concludes that there is a hope for a king who is coming, who will reign justly and righteously and he is the one that God has chosen he's the one that God has anointed even Hannah in her grief looks forward to Christ where are we looking for our life's fulfillment because our hearts are reshaped in our suffering to abide with God in Christ would you pray with me Lord, um, this morning I'm aware that it's much easier to say these words than to walk them out. And you know the heart of every person sitting here. And I pray that you would do the, the work in us that only you can do to apply your word as you intend to whatever situation we're facing. So God, I ask that if there's anything in, in, in our conversation together this morning that has just been my opinion, if there's anything that has been distracting from the truth of your word, that those things would be quickly forgotten. But Lord, where you have spoken clearly by your spirit through your word, that it would embed itself in our souls in a way that we cannot escape it. That in the dark nights where pain is strong, and anxiety is overwhelming that you would shine your light and that the hope of your king, your anointed, your chosen Messiah would flood our hearts and that whether you give us what we want and alleviate the pain or whether you walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death, that we would know you are good. And only you can do that. Only you can bring strength and comfort in broken times. So Lord, would you give us boldness to give voice to our grief, to actually talk it out with you and with those who are going to continue to lift us up and entrust us to you. Would you use our pain to drive us into a closer walk with you rather than to throw up our hands and storm off? Would you draw our gaze to help us to see that all of the fullness of life is found in your son, Jesus? And would we look to him 
for true life. We thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.